it's just more entertaining to see people push it to the very limit. We like, you know, showmanship. Yeah. You like seeing people that are almost superhuman, but, you know, there's been more conversation around the fact that these guys are risking their lives every time they get in that vehicle. For entertainment. For entertainment. Hi, my name is Denise Milanakis, and you're listening to the Machelez podcast. I am sitting in my friend Cassidy's apartment. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for coming over. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm excited to record this. We've been talking about it for a little while now, so feels good to be getting this done. I'm really passionate about this, as you can tell. You're so passionate about this. You're the perfect guest for this episode. This is an episode that's essential in the lineup of Marielle's episodes. Also, I feel so professional. I came here. You have all the equipment where we have two mics. You have two podcast mics. And uh, this is your realm. This is your domain because this is where you film your review videos for your F1 races. Yeah. Tell us about that, please. Well, we started it at the beginning of the 2020 season of... F1, basically, where I've been into the sport pretty much since literal birth. Like, I came out, my parents sat me in front of the TV, and I've been an F1 fan ever since, so... Your whole family are F1 fans? Yeah, my mom, way back in the day, she used to get tickets to the Montreal Grand Prix through a client who would bring her, and then she would bring my dad, so they would watch it constantly, and then... They got almost even more into it once I was around four or five and could really start understanding what I was watching. How did you... Okay, that's how you got into it. What, what is it about the sport that attracts you to it? It's a really big mix of things. Um, first of all, it's very glamorous. And... How so? You have these multi, multi-million dollar teams. Like, they spend hundreds of millions of dollars every single year trying to get the best car at the front of the grid. You have really big personalities as drivers, which is kind of a new emerging trend where they aren't so much these PR robots. They really get to kind of expand and show who they really are. Um, I grew up as an athlete, so for me, competition is just part of my nature, part of Mm -hmm. who I am. And I just love seeing people try to be the absolute best they can be and there's really something so special about it when you're there in person hearing the noise of these cars and it just feels loud unreal (laughs) like oh my god (laughs) how much of it is like the athleticism okay tangent segue in baseball for example there's like the yankees but they're they're one of the best teams but they are funneled millions of like their budget is like exponentially more than any other baseball team how much is it between like raw talent and like the money you put into it and in this case it's like how much is the athleticism of the athlete of the driver in the car versus like the team who is you know the ferrari wheels versus the mclaren wheels versus the 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 hardware of the car it's a pretty big toss-up money does play a huge part of it in a lot of cases now, you essentially have to be rich in order to get into the sport in the first place, because even carding can cost you upwards of 50 grand a year. What is that? Just to get started. Carding? Carding. Like the little carts. Like go-karting. Essentially, yeah. Got it, got it, got it. And so now you have these massive, massive teams like um, Mercedes, Ferrari, that spend a budget of probably half a billion dollars almost per year, who hire hundreds if not thousands of staff to make sure that they have the best parts they have the best engineers they have everyone working towards this car whereas you have some smaller teams like um, a new team that joined a few years ago they're an american team called haas they probably have a fraction of the budget if that so they are struggling Mm -hmm. to kind of keep on par with these teams that are just massive conglomerates at this point um in terms of the athleticism of the drivers it's a huge factor and that's something that a lot of people don't realize because a lot of people tend to think that the car is doing all of the work and yes the car has a massive part to play in it but these guys have to be so physically fit because they're going anywhere from like two to five g's in you know a few turns they're going upwards of 300 kilometers an hour and then they have to get that car stopped so it's it's a lot of physical demand there are races that are so demanding and they put in 
so much effort that they will, you know, get out of the car after the race and they'll have lost like five pounds of water weight just through sweating. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. When I was watching, like doing research for this, um, they called it the F1 fraternity. Um, is, is there any women, women race car drivers? F1 there drivers? are in some of the, um, I don't want to say lower levels, but essentially there's... More amateur levels? Yeah, just because you have to work your way up. There's no person that just starts driving and then immediately finds their way into an F1 seat. You kind of have to go through the um, Euro Cup series or F3, F2, and then eventually get... What's the difference between F3, F2, F1? Whoa, well, what is that? It's A lot of it is partly age categories. They are also... Um, we kind of call them feeder series. So they are smaller teams that get you your experience in a one-seater car you race through there if you do well in f3 you'll get picked up by a team for f2 okay and then a lot of teams in f2 will have direct links to the teams in f1 where they kind of that's where they pull their roster of talent once a driver moves on from f1 so there is a female driver i think she's in f3 at the moment her name is jamie chadwick cool and she's really exciting i think she she was either on the podium or she won a race very very recently so it's exciting to see a female going through the mix because otherwise women are vastly underrepresented in this sport whether it be staff or just drivers themselves i think there's only been a total of six women f1 drivers and only one has ever won a single race i see okay so explain to me the basics of f1 so it's a circle track no, complete opposite. What? Yeah. What's a circle? Is, cir- is a circle a Grand Prix? Uh... A circle is it's just the NASCAR. NASCAR. The that's what I meant to say. It's a circle NASCAR. Yeah, essentially. Okay. So you have oval tracks like NASCAR, like um, the Indy Five Hundred, okay. stuff like that. Whereas F One, um, the circuits have changed a lot over the years, just depending on location, um, formatting of the track, because you can kind of change them a lot depending on where you are. So there's some that we call city circuits. So Montreal is one of them where you are driving directly on a road and then stuff like uh, Monaco or Bahrain, where it's literally you are driving in the middle of a city and they just block off the roads for the track. And they're going as fast as they're going. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's very high risk, like extremely high risk as I'm sure you've seen through your research, but yeah. Um, a lot of people criticize Monaco because it, it's essentially where you qualify is where you're going to end in the race because there's no room for passing. But you see these guys driving two, 300 kilometers and they're right next to the barriers. They're right next to the road. You see their wheels essentially touching the side of like guardrails. Okay. And then you have other tracks um, like in Austria or Belgium that they're just built out Pretty much in the wilderness. Yeah. So they're specifically built and meant to be like a, basically a racetrack, but they all have their own formats and design. Some are better than others. Some have different purposes that are more for like straight line speed. Some are more technically difficult in terms of the turning radius. Right. Stuff like that. So is it more of a sprint or a marathon? Like how many laps are they, is each driver doing? Are they trying to like, like pace their car? How does it work where you have to stop and get a pit stop? Does your time stop? No, your time doesn't stop. So it has really come down to strategy in the past, I'd want to say one to two decades because um, they have to change their tires How often do they change their tires? It depends on the circuit, most times twice. So most times they come in for two pit stops. How many, how many times do they do a lap? How long is a race? Uh, Anywhere between around 55 to 75 laps. It depends on the length of the circuit. That's so long. I know. It's, it takes roughly around two hours. Oh my God. You must be, they must be so nauseous. Like it's, that's why they have to train so hard. They have some of the no kidding thickest necks you'll ever see like Like, literally they're they're built like a brick (laughs) i'm not kidding (laughs) they're literally built like a brick because they have to have so much strength to keep their body from like flinging around inside this car how big are these cars like how is it literally i know they're very low to the ground Mm -hmm. they're like sort of lying down in the car yeah they're very okay and then it's is it like a traditional car where I don't know if you've been inside one of these. Like, you have, like, the gas, the pedal, the gears. No, um, everything is on the steering wheel. So 
these steering wheels seriously look like like an astronaut yeah like a rocket scientist would have to figure this out like it's there are so many buttons and they do all the gear shift changes on the steering wheel themselves mercedes have a really cool system called uh, das so Mm das where depending on how they pull or push the steering wheel it changes the inversion of the wheels so the wheels will either go we call it like toe out so they'll invert kind of an opposite direction so that can give them more grip in the corners whereas if they go toe in i think i'm getting this right if they go toe in they'll have straight or faster straight line speed so that's just like massive massive technical innovation but there's so many parts to it and the cars are large but the cockpit is really really small like they are hugged in there their seats are fitted to their bodies there's next to no room. So just like you're drafting an athlete to be your your F1 driver, is it the same thing for like the mosh pit crew? Like they do times who gets to be, um, who gets to be the person who, I'm thinking of Cars the movie, where it's like, <laughs> honestly, that's like, that is a good comparison though, because yeah, they have entire pit stop crews where their entire job is to be the fastest at changing tires and they have the little, the little oils, guns. What else do they change or what else do they modify? It's really mostly the tires. Occasionally if a driver crashes and there's a damaged part of the vehicle that can be replaced they'll do that you'll see a lot of um the front wing will get damaged because those things are like carbon what's fiber. the front wing it's these little plates at the front of the car that help with downforce so it keeps the car from on like, the ground basically and preventing it from having massive vibrations so it, it helps you essentially get closer to your opponent in front of you so it, it literally looks kind of like a little airplane wing but just at the very front of the car on each side okay but they're super, super fragile. So you touch someone with it, it's damaged and it's like flying off the side of the road, basically. I think that's, that's yeah, involved that, in this that case. That is a huge part of this. I want to talk about the safety of this sport, but I think that'll transition more into like the end of our conversation. How safe is the sport now? How often are there deaths or serious injuries in the F1 sport? Much less often nowadays. The cars in general are a lot safer. They have a lot more padding kind of around the driver. But the opposite side of that is that the cars are so much faster than they used to be. Like, these are the fastest vehicles on Earth at any given moment. Like, even when they're in a high braking zone, they're still coming in at so much speed. And if something, you know, lets go on the car, we've seen that so many times where a driver is pulling into a corner, trying to brake, brake fails, tire punctures something, and they can go crashing into the barriers. We've seen like horrific crashes where they're basically somersaulting in the air but they now also have something called a halo so it's this little section that goes above the driver's head that if there's any debris that falls on the car that'll protect the driver from being crushed and we've already seen it a few times in the past i'd say two three years where that has probably saved a driver's life wow okay that's that's fucked (laughs) it is it's still there's still a lot to be done because even like last year i think exactly today someone in f2 died in a race where where in the world in belgium it's one of the most deadly circuits um it's just it's such high speed and it comes up on this blind corner Essentially, two drivers crashed, he hit a barrier, and then his car came back out on track where another driver ran into him, and he's like still recovering from his injuries. How fast are these cars going now? Anywhere between two, three hundred kilometers an hour. Okay. So it's heavy impact just to come to basically a dead stop. So that was really tragic. Um, I think the last one before that, I think it was in 2015 with um a driver jules bianchi he didn't die immediately in the car but it was at a basically torrential downpour race in japan they they race even in downpour yeah which has been another massive contention for why 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 wasn't that that addressed um thing is fans love wet races because you'll typically see a lot of drivers make mistakes there's a little bit more uncertainty about who could do well who won't But this one was just, it was a whole other level. Like it was the after effects of a, I think a hurricane or a tsunami or something like that. And there was a crane on track pulling a crashed car off the circuit. Okay. And this guy lost control of the car and crashed into the crane. Uh... So that's kind of a fluke accident, but the race should have been stopped well beforehand. And I think 
he died probably eight, nine months after. Run me through the flags really quickly, too. So yellow flag is basically to tell drivers ahead to slow down. There's either been an accident on the circuit. There's some debris that needs to be cleaned up. If you're in Montreal, oftentimes it means there's an animal on the road. Really? Um, Does that happen? We get gophers all the time. (laughs) There was actually a driver that hit a gopher a few years ago and it exploded in the front of his car. (gasps) Yeah. That's awful. Yep. Do you have to slow down? Like what if you... You can get penalized if you don't. Okay. That's, that happens. Um, we see it a lot in qualifying because... I think that's that will also come up in our yeah, in our story. Absolutely. So if you see yellow flags, you absolutely you have to slow down. And there's also a rule where there's no overtaking okay. under a yellow flag. So you can't try to pull a move on another driver because they're going slow. Yeah. Um, you have blue flags, which is... It's to let the back runners, so the guys that are running way behind the pack... To let them know that a leader has lapped them and oh. they have to move out of the way okay. so that they don't impede their race. Okay. You can also get penalized if you don't listen um, to that. Green flag just means, you know, go. Everything's good. good to go. Um, red flag means that the session has been stopped. So put a halt on either testing, um, qualifying, practice, race. Like it's just put to an end and most likely it'll just resume later. Um, black flag basically means like you're you're out like you're disqualified and i think black and white flags means you've gotten a warning for dangerous driving or something of the sorts okay 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 good good to know good to know and what is the black and white checkered flag what does that mean does that just that's just done the you're logo done. yeah okay you're done. <laughs> end you're... of the race you're woo-hoo. <laughs> we did it we did it okay so we're gonna actually talk about uh the tragic death of Gilles Villeneuve in 1982 so we have the racetrack is named after him. Mm-hmm. We had the restaurant Newtown downtown, which doesn't exist anymore on Crescent. I loved that. Loved that place. Oh my god, that was so much fun. And um, he's really changed the landscape. So I hear of F one racing. Mm-hmm. He's just for me always been known as a Canadian icon. Like he didn't grow up that far from Montreal. He was from I think like uh, Saint Jean sur Yeah. So to come from such a small town, he did racing in his early years at Tremblant. Mm-hmm. One of his kind of standout moments before he made it into F1 was a race at Trois-Rivières, of all places, where these big hotshot F1 guys from Europe flew in, and he had a less performing car, and he just wiped the floor with them. So much so that, you know, one of the European guys, um, James Hunt, who was like, basically the face of the sport at the time he was hailing him as like this new talent he was so impressed and that's that's really saying a lot because he wasn't a guy who really paid attention to many other people so it was just showing right from the get-go like you had someone really really special and the fact that he's canadian to me always just makes it so much more admirable quebecois close to home Mm -hmm. close to home close to a small town um so he's like we said from saint from saint jean sur richelieu um, he was Canada's finest high-speed racer. Early in his life, Villeneuve showed a passion for cars and a fearless nature. Um, he was a, a motorized sled racer. So mm-hmm. that's how he got into the racing business. That is also so Canadian with like... I know. Like, of course he would be a snowmobiler. A of snowmobiler. Course. That's it. Exactly. And he won the North American Championship in 1971, the Quebec Crown in 72, the Canadian title in 73. And he used his earnings from the snowmobile racing to enter the Formula Ford competition, winning the 1973 Quebec Crown. He progressed to the Formula Atlantic races in 74, but broke his leg um, at at his debut um, in Ontario, but he returned in 75 and he scored a rick victory. He ranked fifth overall in the standings. In 1976, he dominated the Canadian and American FA competition, winning nine out of the 10 races. Another Canadian championship followed in 1977 as he entered the Can-Am racing, Can-Am class racing. Villeneuve's success brought him an offer to join the Ferrari team on the world circuit. So now he's in the big leagues. Mm-hmm. Um, I see really cute. I saw really cute pictures of him with Enzo Ferrari sitting um, somewhere in Belgium. <laughs> they're, they're just chilling. Apparently, Enzo Ferrari was a dick. Do you oh, know? Oh, absolutely. Oh, he was a monster, <laughs> an absolute icon. I'll give him that. But he was just notorious for being extremely rude to staff. He had so many people that he would just fire for 
pretty much no real reason other than him being in a bad mood. He would go off on drivers, blaming them for things that was outside of their control, like mechanical failures. He was a big believer in psychological warfare. What? Yeah. <laughs> he thought that if he pitted his two drivers against each other and like made them play the psychological game, that they would perform better. I'm Whereas, very glad you mentioned that. He's He was not the nicest of guys, but... I mean, he built an absolute legacy and brought that team from zero to hero. Unless you're talking today's standards, they're not doing very well. <laughs> but he loved Gilles, and he went to see all his all his races. And like for someone who was notably uh, a prick, they really got along really great, which mm-hmm. was a difficult feat, as yeah. I understand it. Absolutely, I think it really showed how Gilles was. A very different character. He was liked by literally everybody. I don't yeah. think anyone had a bad thing to say about him. Also, young are they always? Are they always so young? Race car drivers. Yeah, and are they're young? actually getting younger and younger. I think the youngest one on the circuit right now is only twenty years old, and oh this is his second year in the sport. And how do they retire normally? Mm, usually, mid thirties is the average. It, that's if you have a successful career. Okay, we'll get there. He died at thirty-five. Is that like people consider that like? The reviews, the reviews. The research shows that he's like, he was cut at his prime. Yeah, it's it's become a sport that has gotten younger and younger. Okay. Back in the 50s and 60s, you used to have 50-year-olds driving the cars just because they could. It was almost like a old boys club. Yeah. You have money. You want a bit of adrenaline. You like to live dangerously. Go into F1. Whereas yeah. nowadays, it's you have to be peak athletic shape. You have to be kind of a one in a billion talent, basically. So back then, it was more common for people to either race longer or start their careers a bit later. Whereas nowadays, it's completely shifted where you are putting basically teenagers into one of the most stressful positions on earth. His initial Grand Prix triumph occurred in Montreal in 19. 19- 76. He scored further victories in Long Beach, California, and New York. In 1976, he finished second in the World Championship to teammate Joe Schechter, Jody Schechter, and he won six of the 67 races he drove for Ferrari in Formula One. Is that a good? Is that good? It's honestly a lot better than what most drivers are able to accomplish, and I think that, given with the fact that Ferrari had an underperforming car for two of the years that he was with them. He was basically driving a soapbox on wheels. That thing was so bad. Why was it so bad? What was it missing? uh, Just design. You can design an amazing car one year and then try to apply technical changes the next, and it just doesn't work. Mm -hmm. We see it a lot even nowadays where a team can be on the rise for what seems like years and years, and then one bad year and it all goes to waste and you're falling back. So I think um, from what I remember, they had brought in a different engineer to then kind of fix it. And he had even said the fact that Gilles was still, you know, pulling off like top five performances in that car was a mystery because it was an absolute piece of garbage. (laughs) Okay, cool. So this is the backstory that leads into the death. I think this is relevant. So at Santa Marino in April 1982, Villeneuve is leading. So teammate Didier Peroni is a second close. Ferrari pits signal slow, telling its drivers to hold positions to ensure the cars hold out for the win. Villeneuve obeys, but Peroni pulls ahead, stealing the victory. Villeneuve, furious, vows never to speak to Peroni again. And this is the the prelapse, the prequel, if you will, to the incident. So three weeks later, uh, Villeneuve's 68th Grand Prix is in Belgium, and because of the controversy, tensions are high. So it's the final hour of qualifying. Coming into the pits, Villeneuve zips over a hill at 225 kilometers per hour and hits Johan Mass's slow-moving car in the rear. So I, I saw footage of this. So the way the way it looks in the awful footage, mm-hmm. it's it's gut-wrenching and very difficult to watch yeah and i think they must have played it in slow motion because the first time i saw nothing i was like oh what because it it wasn't an explosion it wasn't like i thought it was just it didn't look like much but then when you see it in slow motion you see all the moving elements that your like your naked eye misses Mm -hmm. so he's turning the corner and there's another car in front of him who's going slow and that car veers to the right 
And supposedly, and I, I believe the gentleman, he, <laughs> the gentleman, I believe him when he says, I was just trying to let him pass. Mm-hmm. And then he also veered to the right to pass him. And then they, like, they didn't collide. It was like a... It's a little touch. A That's touch. all it takes when you're traveling at that high of a speed. Because yeah. it's like, it's really common in qualifying it happens all the time where someone who is moving slower that's called being on an outlap where the time you're not setting a time you're just making your way around the track whether that's to come into the pits whether it's to kind of line yourself up for an in lap where Mm -hmm. you are aiming to get the best time they tend to stick to the outer sides of the track or the non-racing line so someone like Villeneuve coming in behind at a really high speed corner clipping a guy who's trying to stay out of the way it's a split second decision yeah he could have chosen to go right go left stay in the middle Villeneuve could have also chosen to go a completely different direction they just both happen to make the wrong choice at the wrong time yeah and so the car literally disintegrates Mm -hmm. and then he is propelled out of the car and he hits a fence so here Villeneuve was killed in a high-speed qualifying session I wanted to ask you about qualifying is is it only like the Ferrari team that's qualifying to see who they're sending to their race what is a qualifying no all of the teams will send out their drivers so it goes um you're basically just qualifying to see where you're going to be starting the race so you have three different rounds of qualifying there's Q1 where everyone goes out. Um, I don't know if it's really changed, if there's been more or less drivers at this time, but the standard now is there's 10 teams, two drivers per team, so 20 drivers. Okay. So all 20 drivers go out. They try to set the best time. Those in the worst five, so from 16th to 20th, their times get knocked out after Q1. So they're They're out they're just out they don't move on to the second round of qualifying okay then second round it's between 11th and 15th get knocked out do they all start at the same place like how do or yeah you start at the starting line okay and it's kind of up to you that's where teams kind of test out like which tires are we going to try to qualify on okay you get i think it's it kind of depends on the round of qualifying but you get like a certain amount of time to put in your best lap you get several chances or however many times you want to go if you're going around 70 times yeah i sure hope (laughs) you get okay yeah so okay it's a bit of a tricky situation with this one because one of them was saying that he wasn't on a qualifying lap like he was coming into the pits but then you wonder why was he going so fast yeah at the time of the crash peroni has set a time one-tenth of a second faster than Villeneuve for sixth place. Villeneuve was using his final set of qualifying tires. Some say he was attempting to improve his time on the final lap, while others suggested he was specifically aiming to beat Peroni, given their, like, previous beef. However, Villeneuve's biographer, uh, who quoted the Ferrari race engineer Moro Forgeri, say was saying that he was going uh, to the pit when the incident occurred, and if so, he would not even have set a time on that lap. Eight minutes of the session left. Villeneuve came over the rise after the first chicane. Am I saying that right? Chicane. 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 <laughs> Ooh, chicane. <laughs> after the first chicane and caught Johan Mass traveling much slower through boot. Boote? Good question. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So he saw Johan Mass traveling much slower and the left-handed bend before. Okay. I think these are all just like parts of Belgium. Like, Yeah. It's the, all different uh, corners of the track. And they each have names? Yeah. Yeah. Even the ones here. Oh my god. Montreal, they'll have their own. What are they named? Um, the ones, the first two turns at Montreal, which like are literally my favorite part of the whole track, it's uh, the Senna turns. Oh, very cool. Senna. Double right-handed section. Massa Villeneuve approaching at high speed and moved to the right to let him through on the racing line. At the same instant, Villeneuve also moved to the right to pass the slower car, and the Ferrari hit the back of Massa's car and was launched into the air at a speed estimated at 200 to 225 kilometers per hour. It was airborne for more than 100 meters before nosediving to the ground and disintegrating as it somersaulted along the edge of the track. So Vidnev, still strapped to his seat, but without his helmet because his helmet flew off, was thrown a further 50 meters into the wreckage into the catch fencing on the outside edge of that corner. Um, several drivers stopped and rushed to the scene. Uh, John Watson, Derek Warwick pulled Villeneuve, and apparently his face was blue. And the doctor arrived within 35 seconds to find him not breathing. And although his pulse continued, um, you know, he was transferred to a hospital and he had a fatal fracture of the neck. 
uh, an inquiry inquiry into the incident was led by Derek Ongaro and the safety inspector and concluded that, okay, so a big part of the Mariela's podcast is we identify who's to blame for this death. So we could challenge this decision, but on paper, the inspector concluded that it was an error from Villeneuve that caused him to strike Mass's car. And um, because of this, it exonerated any responsibility of the incident, of the technical part, of the actual car, of the of the person he bumped into for being in the way, because they just said it was completely his fault and then exonerated anybody else. So we're trying to identify what happened, who is to blame for the death, and, you know, we have no answers and we're not an authority, but we're here to spit We're here some, to discuss. Exactly. Spit some discussions. What do you think? If you had to put, like, names on the board, mm-hmm. I have a few names. I mean, the accident itself, I do think was Villeneuve's fault. Okay. He was coming in with such high speed and if he was supposedly on an outlap there was no need for him to be going that fast he made the decision to try to go for the overtake which i don't think was in the best spot of the track that being said it is absolutely ridiculous that he was ever flung from his car a car should never be built that way where a driver could literally be completely thrown from their vehicle. How do accidents normally occur? Like they they maintain in the vehicle and it's like a collision that they're like squished. Yeah, they um no, they essentially they have so much padding mm-hmm. on basically all of the surrounding areas. It's not like an airbag, but there are like kind of cushioning. So if someone does crash into you or your car flips, it's supposed to the body of the car is supposed to stay intact. I don't really know what the standard was back then, but the fact that a whole seatbelt and seat seatbelt seat and body body could just be flown from the vehicle that's yeah. unacceptable yeah that's i think became a huge issue when debating the safety of the sport but why was that not addressed sooner so i think manufacturing wise they're very much to blame yeah so when blaming Leslie Vidner for his own his own accident, are you know is it are we b- blaming his let's say competition, his competitive nature for wanting to beat this other driver who he already had a vendetta, a little vendetta against, and who was one tenth whatever the the fraction was faster than him on the lap? Is it external pressures that he internalized? Is it his own drive? I like, what are we blaming for? Let's say if he is the author of this fate. Mm-hmm. It's difficult to say, considering we obviously don't know what his mental state was when this was happening, but there is an aspect of when you're in the vehicle, yes, it's all out competition. Yes, you can, you know, be passionate and emotional and angry, but you have to make smart decisions at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. So whether he was clouded by this need to beat his teammate at whatever cost or risk... Well, unfortunately, sometimes you see the outcome of that risk and it's just the decision sometimes of if there were still eight minutes left in qualifying, he would have had the time. He would have had more than enough time to come into the pits, get some tires on, go back out again. Yeah, eight minutes is a lot in racing. It is. Okay. Another, you know, another thing possibly to blame, what is the passing protocol? Like who, like, you know, in traditional roads, you pass on the left, there, there is a procedure, everybody is, if you don't respect the procedure, you're the one in the fault. How is there no procedure in this? He goes right, the other guy also goes right. Like people pass each other all the time in this sport. How does one normally pass each other? Typically, if you're in an outlap, you're supposed to stay wherever you need to be so long as it's not on the racing line. But then there are certain corners where when it becomes so narrow, there's not always the space to give 100% clear room. So I think that's part of it in here too is, you know, did he leave enough space? Did he choose the right side of the track to leave the racing line to those coming behind him? That's kind of up in the air as well, because even in the sport today, we see it all the time where drivers get in each other's way and they almost collide and they're swearing on the radio and they're demanding for penalties, but it's... It's really more common than you'd think that sometimes drivers just don't know where they are in reference to who is around them. Because if Mass Mass stayed where he was, it would have been fine. He would have passed perfectly and, you know, you could argue that there wouldn't have been a collision at all. Or if he, you know, I don't know, because Mass moved so slowly out of the way, but he was going really slowly. Mm -hmm. Well, it seemed slowly in comparison. It probably wasn't slow in like, it's it's very, because... 
I don't know. I, I'm, I'm struggling to find, like, how are there no passing rules? Like, how is there no protocol? There's technically protocol in terms of, you know, you're supposed to li- leave technically one car's width when passing someone. Kind of like you would on a road when you're passing a bike. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't always happen. And it's... So in this instance, who broke protocol? Who can we blame in this instance? Mm. I'd almost want to see the footage over again. As much as I don't want to see it, it's it's such a fine line. But just from what I remember, they were both on the complete edge of the track. And I just find it so strange how they both could have picked the same spot. Yeah. Yeah, they were both on like the inside of the track. Right. So I'd like to blame lack of protocols or lack of rules. The fact that there was no, like, you shouldn't have veered or he should have veered. Like, that could have, like, helped with blame. That's one thing I want to blame. So mm-hmm. we're blaming poor hardware for the fatal ej- ejection. Mm-hmm. We're blaming maybe competitiveness, right? Like, he's the competition, the need for speed, maybe not being able to cool down the pettiness, but also, I don't know if it's petty, but it's your job. Is it petty if it's your job to beat this other race car driver? You know what I mean? Technically, it's what you are sent out there to do. Yeah. I'd also blame communication within the team. A hundred percent. Yeah. There should have been someone notifying him and whether it happened or not, I guess we'll never find out, but of saying, okay, there is a slow car coming up and however many turns, be mindful watch out because that's the thing nowadays they they have to almost be in constant communication with their race engineer to let them know okay you've got a car on an outlap make sure to avoid i'm sure they're they're plugged in and someone's watching from the top right yeah okay cool 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 it's 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 frustrating it is it's something that could have been avoided on so many different levels just in terms of even if they crashed he shouldn't have been sent flying the car shouldn't have disintegrated yes it was high speed but it shouldn't be at that level. Um, there could have been much better precautions taken in terms of security at the track itself. Like you are supposed to have cushions, barriers. Why is a chain link fence the only thing keeping you between the ground and Are we spectators? blaming the chain link fence? Because I want to blame the chain link fence. It's oh, a, absolutely. It's a catch fence. What is a catch fence other than to catch a driver? Like, what is, what's a stupid place to put a fence? Mm-hmm. Nobody was in the stands. Like, there were no, like, stands in the footage. Like, it's not like it was, like, to, to separate them from fans. What is that fence doing there? That's a very good question. And it's been a huge issue in terms of just general safety of the sport. Why are there concrete barriers being the only things keeping the drivers between the track and off the track. Who are they trying to protect with those barriers? It's changed a lot in recent years. Now you have full, full, like, massive things of padding. You have water barrels. You have off-road, like, they've pushed the extremities of the track so that if someone does go off, at least they have a little bit more either breaking room or distance for the car to slow down before it hits something. Mm -hmm. But that just wasn't the case back in the days. There are still you know, certain sections of track or old tracks that aren't in use anymore where it was literally just a road and then field. Like a field, a grass field, a ditch, a tree. And there's been so many driver deaths over the years because it's all it takes is one little slip up and they are off the road barreling. And when you hit something at that high of an impact, your chances of surviving it are very low when your car is not meant to protect you. Another thing I sort of want to blame, and it could definitely be argued, is the normalization of extreme sports. Like, why are we (laughs) racing (laughs) cars as fast as we could against each other? Like, it seems like, uh, you know, what we all used to, well, mostly little boys, played with as hot hot wheel toys. Like, that's who invented the sport, as if a toddler went, I'm going to sit in the car and I'm going to drive it faster than your car. Yeah, they're compensated with multi-million dollar contracts and they get to fly all around the world. But when you see your colleague pass away, there has to be a little bit of self-reflection as to what can be done to prevent this going forward. Or more that like we've created this sport as viewers, they're put in these dangerous positions. And you see, it, it's it's almost too convenient to blame, oh, the race car driver should have slowed down. And that's why, oh, no, the sport's fine. It's just him. It's just him. Like we've created this, this like... Um, 
this dangerous environment purely for entertainment, we've normalized this unnatural occurrence. Mm -hmm. It's a completely man-made, arbitrary system, and it's there. People are dying. People are really getting hurt. It's multi-million dollars for what? The entertainment of, of fans. It's and it's not a. It's a very high-risk sport. We've created. I don't know. It's not far off from like the Roman Colosseum. Like, let's throw someone in there. Let's throw someone with a lion and um, or a tiger, and uh, let's see who fights fights for the end. And it seems cruel and immoral. Except instead of that being a slave or someone who's forced into that a prisoner into that situation, it's someone we decide that we're worshiping instead and praising and giving millions and billions of dollars to. It reflects more about like society and our expectations of entertainment and like the entitlement of no, no, no. You ha- someone there needs to be at least a dozen men on that field on that track risking their lives i think we are so fascinated with the concept of glory and having someone that is just better than the rest and it almost feels like as a society we're constantly pushing the fact that it's never enough we're always bored we always need the next new exciting thing what else can we see what else can we have that is going to fuel that excitement and almost this sense of i would say liberation from the norm and the fact that you're seeing these people do something that is absolutely extraordinary. And Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people want to watch this and feel that rush and excitement almost kind of through a secondhand experience because the fact of the matter is most people can and will not ever be in that position. But these drivers, as a result of being, you know, one of the very select few that ever get to sit in that car, feel a sense of, wow, I made it. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely complex and it's a double-edged sword because there's someone like me who is so passionate about it and wants to make a career out of it and I want this to be everything I know. But yeah, it's stressful sometimes when you get slapped in the face with a very real situation of like people die and it shouldn't be something that's just brushed off as it's part of the sport. Yeah. It's like that is a human life. Even just using Jill as an example, he left behind a wife and a child who are forever traumatized by the fact that this happened and it didn't need to. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really great point. Um, And then another weird aspect of the event is, um, I called it like the final destination version of like that race. How um, three months to the day after Villeneuve's death, Didier Peroni, which is who he's competing against, his like arch nemesis, if you will. um, So his legs were badly badly broken in an eerie similar crash at the German Grand Prix, um, similar as as uh, Villeneuve. So he never resumed his F1 career. Um, he instead died in a powerboating crash in 1987. So it's so weird. And then another person at that event died in another sport-related incidents, like, all within the next couple of years. So everybody involved, maybe they didn't die at, like, in the event. It's It was, like, it was a bad year for that sport. Like, so that I think that race was cursed. Yeah, and weirdly enough, that's not the only time that something like that has happened. There was another situation in 1994 where, oh, the driver's name is escaping me, but he was only, I believe, in his second F1 race ever, he crashed in qualifying again. And then um, Artin Senna, who was one of the F1 greats of all time, and still to this day he's hailed as a legend and one of the best there ever was, he took the Austrian flag and kept it in his car so that if he won the race, he would fly the flag to commemorate the driver that they had lost the day prior, and he ended up dying in the race. That's a cursed flag. How common are deaths now? Very rare. I think, yeah, the one last year in F2 was the first one we'd seen in, I want to say, five years. There was Jules, which was basically a freak accident at um, in Japan. And then I think before that, it had been quite a while. So they are few and far between. But in the late 80s, they were not few. And early oh 90s, God, as no. you said. You were pretty much almost guaranteed a death every few years. I mean, it's good to show that this is how far safety has come in the sport, where crashes are less common, and they are also less common in terms of fatality or extreme injury. Are crashes less common just because, like, the car technology, cars have become more safe, or have there been other outside implementations, too? It's both in terms of track design and just car safety overall. 
but and I think just improved communication between driver and their team so they're more aware of their surroundings and just more car reliability you're less likely to have a car just kind of essentially freak out and give out on you mm-hmm. so after the death of Didier Peroni um his companion, I don't know if that's his wife or girlfriend, uh, gave birth to two twin boys, naming them Gilles and Didier, which is really, really cute. Yeah. Yeah. It's very sad. <laughs> really, really sad. Um, in all, Villeneuve started in 67 Grand Prix races and won six of those and appeared on the podium 13 times. Over 20 years after his death in 1982, Villeneuve still attracts the attention of Formula One watchers in Europe, who still rate Villeneuve high on the all-time Grand Prix list of best drivers. His Grand Prix driving career was very short compared to many other drivers, but in spite of that, he is on the current top 10 drivers list of all time. And he is, you know, his son, Jacques Villeneuve. Yeah, he basically went on to achieve what his father couldn't. And I think that was a huge symbolism because everyone had always said if Gilles had one or two more years, he would have been a world champion. No doubt about it. He just needed the consistency in the car to get him there. And then in 1997, Jacques went on to win the world championship. And it was such a nail biter of a race. So basically it was between Jacques and Michael Schumacher, who is currently the most successful f1 driver of all time and michael essentially knew that if jacques went on and finished anywhere i think within the top six he would win the championship so michael tried to literally knock him off the road he tried driving his car like a tanya harding situation like that's a nancy hair perfect way to describe it absolutely he literally tried to barrel into the side of jacques car and ended up backfiring him. He hit him in the wrong spot. Michael ran off the road and oh, no. his race ended. Whereas Jacques, I think he went on to finish third. He was just trying to nurse his damaged car to the end. And that essentially ended up being a huge thing that made him win the championship. And Michael was there staring down the road, trying to see if Jacques' car was going to make it around on the next lap or if he had done the damage. Because if, if he had knocked him out, then Michael would have won. That's crazy! It was a huge, huge rivalry in motorsport that year. And, I mean, Michael got penalized. I think he got all of his points for that season stripped because it's dangerous driving. You can't do that stuff. But he wanted to win at all costs. So it was just really rewarding to see that, you know, Jacques played fair and won. That's beautiful. I could just imagine his mother, who is, you know, Jin's wife, and like, oh, you're also going into this really extreme, dangerous sport that killed your father when you were really? Are you nine. sure? <laughs> like, do you have to? <laughs> yeah, I've uh, I've briefly met Jacques. Really, very opposite from his father, actually, in terms of personality. Rude. He's very cold oh cold very cold very doesn't really have time i like mine was literally just a quick hello i was so intimidated by him whereas where were you at in montreal i worked um i worked at the canadian grand prix for two summers okay so i got to meet a lot of drivers and yeah i was really excited to meet jock and then he scared me so bad because yeah he he basically has a job to do when he's there and he doesn't really care to talk to people unless it's work related yeah so if we had to conclude who's to blame for the death of gilles Villeneuve? If you had to isolate one incident, it in my personal, I find it difficult to blame the guy who's dead. Like, I yeah, yeah. I mean, I agree with that. I think ultimately, the team itself is at fault. The team failed him. Yeah, and they even failed him post death. No one from Ferrari showed up to his funeral. What? No one showed up to his funeral. Why? There were over twenty thousand people that showed up for the funeral in his hometown of four thousand. Bullshit. From, nobody from Ferrari showed up. Okay, that's messed up. His t- Okay, I feel satisfied with that answer. His team failed him. His yeah. team failed him in terms of the hard... Enzo Ferrari failed him. I'm perfectly okay with that because You're- he is not a nice man. So okay. Let's Perfect. Let's done and dusted. Wow, that was that wrapped up really nicely. <laughs> yeah. Enzo Ferrari failed him because his hardware launched him out into the... You know, his hardware wasn't there. Do you call car... Pe- har- car is car hardware? 
Have I been using the right terminology? I mean, I would say so. Okay. Yeah, the car failed him. The yeah. machinery failed him. The, the machinery failed him. The communication, whoever was, you know, like, whoever told him, hey, this guy got one-tenth faster than you on, you have eight minutes, like, that that guy failed him. You need to know your driver. You need to know their personalities. He failed him. Um, communicating which side, can I feel good with Enzo Ferrari failing him. He's failed a lot of people over the years, so <laughs> I'm okay with this answer. He's very dead, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> I'm not having, like... Okay. Wow. Thank you so much for being in this episode. I feel like thank you for explaining to me the whole sport, the whole history, the concept, the personalities. The I feel um, very close to the subject. You're you're so passionate about it. And, I'm so, and I don't know anyone else. Like, to you, it's crazy that F1 weekend, since you were four, you said, when you were in front of the TV... I don't know. I'm talking about F1 weekend. I know for you, it's probably year round, but F1 weekend is the only time I can't ignore it. It's like, for you, it's like something you look forward to. You go to the races, you work at the races, you're aspiring to get into the, you know, the races as, you know, whatever way you can. For me, I worked in the service industry. It was a lucrative weekend to work, but a nightmare, like an (laughs) absolute nightmare to work that weekend. Um, Everyone is at the city. It's so pretentious. It's so expensive. And to be on the other end of it, uh, you know, I say lucrative, but arguably not worth it for me like to, to put up with that level of abuse in the service industry. But um, just how we have very different, um, very different. And it's funny because one of my friends, I remember she went to the races and she was like, I mean, like something happens like maybe every few minutes and you, you know, it's just like a whoosh, the car passes by and there's nothing really to see mm-hmm. going to the races. But I'm just imagining you all like, like big eyed, doe eyed, like there he goes. That is <laughs> like- exactly how I look. I'm <laughs> running around all over the place they're very long days but I'm essentially running on pure adrenaline for probably about five days straight and yeah if you follow the sport and you understand the point system and you understand how all the team works and the driver dynamics and their personalities and all the little tiny politics that are actually very big politics in the sport then it's so much more fascinating to follow because you get all of this little background info of knowing, oh, these two are pissed off at each other. I wonder how that's going to play into effect this weekend. And why, you know, is this team principal playing favorites? Why is this driver getting the awful strategy, but the favorite seemingly is nothing's ever going wrong for them. And it's all these tiny, minute details that add into this sport that I just find so fascinating, because there's always something new to watch out for. Why don't you plug in your... your, uh f1 uh, instagram and uh youtube channel and i do encourage you to start the podcast that you and chris were going to start (laughs) i will gladly plug everything so i have an f1 related commentary channel on youtube called ccf1 channel we do full race reviews every race weekend we have a couple of little added fun contents on the off weeks essentially reviewing the quality of racing Uh, whether races were exciting, dramatic, our general opinions on how things went down, and basically just two fans talking about our love for the sport. Excellent. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Call me in the afternoon, even by one, by one. Call me in the afternoon, even by one.